Welcome back to the 64th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including one of my favorite topics to complain about, the elites, and them descending from their high hill in Switzerland after the Davos Convention has ended. And then we have another article that's going to really delve into the question of where we derive our freedoms from. I know it may sound a little bit boring, but there's actually a very interesting argument that the author and some of the people that he's drawing from make that I think needs to be combated, or at least needs to be talked about a little bit more. And then, of course, we have our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, it's enough rambling from me. Let's jump into our daily debate. For those of you that didn't know, the World Economic Forum's yearly Davos meeting ended on Friday. After a week full of fear-mongering and explaining how the elites of the world can help guide us to a brighter future. Honestly, I'm. it's not really a, a topic discussed that often, or at least in the circles that I listen to, that some of the stuff they talk about is actually important. And it's not necessarily evil and misguided, as, like I said, some would make you believe. But when it comes from the mouths of the same people that are so self-absorbed about their role in saving our planet, it's really hard to swallow. So my question, now that we're actually getting to the question, is are they really looking out for their interest, our interests, as they say, or are they really concerned with their own? I'd love to hear your opinions. Throw it down in the comment section. Let's jump to our first article. This one comes from Common Dreams. 200 plus millionaires to world leaders at Davos. Tax the ultra rich and do it now. So normally you hear the bottom 99% calling for the quote eating of the rich, but now those in the top 1% are calling for it too. And my question that arises when hearing this is. Is it just a virtue signal? Maybe. But let's hear what they have to say before we really start to make those sort of connections. Quote, a group of more than 200 millionaires from 13 countries published an open letter Tuesday calling on world leaders gathered in Davos to tackle skyrocketing inequality by taxing rich people like themselves, warning that extreme concentrations of wealth at the top are unsustainable. Quote, we are living in an age of extremes, end quote, states the letter from Global Millionaires, which was hand-delivered to the World Economic Forum attendees. So I'll keep going with the quote here in a second, but I just picture the butler going up white gloves with his letter from all the millionaires. Sir, my much less wealthy patron than you has sent this to you. And then the other butler of the other wealthy overly elite people in Davos says, oh, why, thank you, thank you. I'll see you at the yearly butler convention. Like, come on, this is, it's just opulence and it's over the top. And, you know, I haven't actually seen the letter be hand off, but that's just what I picture. These millionaires complaining about billionaires at the end of the day. 
But let's let's return to the quote. Quote, rising poverty and widening wealth inequality, the rise of anti-democratic nationalism, extreme weather and ecological decline, deep vulnerabilities in our shared social systems, and the shrinking opportunity for billions of ordinary people to earn a livable wage. Why, in this age of multiple crises, do you, you continue to tolerate extreme wealth? The letter asks. The solution is plain for all to see. Tax the ultra-rich and do it now. It's simple, common-sense economics. It is an investment in our common good and a better future that we all deserve. And as millionaires, we want to make that investment. End quote. So, to start, to break it down a little bit, I don't know which economic classes they took, but this is definitely not a simple situation. So they're saying that it's simple economics. You just have to tax the people that have more money and then distribute it to the people that have less money. It's pretty straightforward. It is taking money from the ultra-rich and giving it to the poor. Why? It's just reallocation. That's so simple. And it does sound very simple. And the economic truth behind it is not really that complicated because... You're taking money from somebody, you're giving it to somebody else through a welfare program. Now, that's pretty simple economically. But then you have to peel back the layers a little bit. You have to ask the question, well, if we're going to tax people that make more money, if we're going to take more, a larger percentage of their wealth, then are they going to be incentivized to continue making more money? And of course people on this side of the aisle, and a lot of people in general would say yes, of course, because people are greedy. Even if you're taking 20% of their pie, they're still going to want to make their pie 10% larger because that still means that more money is going to them. And yes, I do agree with that thought process, but if we tax them at the tax rates that have been proposed in the past, they never actually listed, they listed a very progressive tax system here, but if you remember, some of these people were saying up to half of what billionaires bring in a year should be taxed. This was part of the movement years ago and is still a talking point in some circles. If you have a tax rate like that, you're actively disincentivizing these people from making money. They're going to have more creative tax shelters. They're going to buy more art and keep them in free ports. And then you're going to actually limit the amount of money that they're going to give to charity or reinvest in the economy or possibly personally reinvest in companies by buying shares of stock. So it's not this simple equation that's one for one. Just tax them a little bit more. At the end of the day, we can just take a little bit of extra money out of our pockets and allow it to go to the poorest of us. And I think... If they're genuine here and they're not just virtue signaling, I think that is very noble of them. But it is not as simple as they make it sound to be. The millionaires draw heavily on a study published last week that shows more than half of the new wealth created since 2020 went to the top 1%. My question is, why do these millionaires need to be taxed more? Why do they have to involve the government? Why not work with charities? And this is the other aspect of the 
if you want to call it economic equation, but I think it's actually more of a social equation, which is why should you involve the government? Why do you have to be taxed in order to take that money? Is it because at the end of the day, they have a monopoly on violence and they're the only one that can force certain millionaires and billionaires that don't want to give money to lots of charities? Maybe, maybe that's their incentive. But if you feel so compelled to give away some more of your money, you can actually get tax write-offs for giving money to charity. You can found your own charity, and a lot of these people have to give them credit. But if they really want a more progressive tax system, why not just impose a self-tax? That 3-5% of their income that would be progressively taxed, give it to a charity of your choice per year. And then you can write those taxes, you can write that off on your taxes. And if you want to be double taxed and you want to ensure the welfare programs get paid for, then just give to the charity and then don't necessarily write it off on the taxes. There are social solutions here. Involving the government just adds another layer where your money is going to have to pay for certain bureaucrats, certain policies, regulations. And that's actually going to bog down the effectiveness of your money if you were to give it to a worthwhile charity. Let's say one that comes to the mind is uh, Make-A-Wish. And I know it's very different. It doesn't necessarily help impoverished communities. But at the end of the day, it's a proven charity that uses your money wisely. I believe when I was listening to a podcast recently, it's up to 90% of the money goes where it should. The rest goes to the bureaucracy of these different charitable foundations. So I think that involving the government is an unnecessary layer. And then also there's an extra part to that, which is then these people who are less advantaged, that are poorer and rely on these welfare programs, they become more reliant on the welfare programs because now the government says, well, we can provide a little bit more for you. We can have a few more programs because we're taxing these people more heavily. And the goal at the end of the day is to redistribute that wealth. So they're going to come up with more programs or up the amount in these programs to help these people at the bottom end. And that sounds very noble and honorable. But at the end of the day, if you get people hooked on a system that is going to provide for them, rather than give them an incentive to provide for themselves, then I think that's a problem. If you look at the Bill Clinton era, I was always, my mother and I always had conversations where we were very much against just giving out free money. The Bill Clinton era said that for a certain amount of time, you will receive these benefits. But after this certain amount of time, even if you're proving that you're looking for work, you are off these benefits. I think that's a very good compromise because it says we will help you in your time of struggle, but we're not going to let you sit here and suckle off the teat of the government forever. You have to actively work to find a better situation. You have to actively pursue your goals, and you have to push yourself to get out of this situation. I think it's a good middle ground of this constant battle of, oh, well, you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps, but some people need assistance. It's a middle ground where you're actually saying, you're incentivizing them to have pride in themselves, to value themselves, to say, yes, I do deserve to go out and get a job and not be reliant on Big Brother, not be reliant on a government that at the end of the day, if they run out of taxable money, which they won't, but if they were, then I'd be screwed. No, you have a people that is becoming 
more dependent on the government, especially with these welfare programs. And I don't necessarily think taking wealth from the top 1% and giving it to the rest, to the bottom, is actually going to help bring those people out of the bottom and get them to build generational wealth over time. They have to change their habits. They have to be more responsible. And, of course, this is easy to say as a person who's had grandparents, great-grandparents, parents who have been responsible with their any situation they've been put in. Obviously, that's easy to say for me. And it's probably easy to say for a lot of these millionaires, but it's true. We have to inspire change in that bottom 25, 50% and not just give them money because we don't want them to just be dependent. They don't want to just be dependent. Some people may be, but I highly doubt that they want to be dependent on somebody else for survival. They want to feel fulfilled. And there's a certain amount of pride and happiness they enjoy that you get from being successful or at least understanding that you have value and working hard and pushing to prove that you are worth what you think you are worth, at least in my opinion. So that's why I think this letter is a little over the top. And I don't think that these millionaires who are try- attacking billionaires are kind of missing the mark, honestly. But that's just my opinion on the matter. So the millionaires took aim at Davos because it's one of the largest gatherings of global elites in the world, from John Kerry to UN Secret- the U- UN Secretary General and activists of all types. But it is interesting that the millionaires are really taking aim at the ultra-rich and not just the rich. They said they, you can tax us, we're willing to give more money, but at the end of the day, all their language is centered around the ultra-rich the people that are just a little bit more rich than them. They're ultra versions of them. So I think it's always interesting when the language suggests something beyond, oh, you can tax me, I'll give up more of my income. No, it's it. you also need to give even more of your income as the ultra rich. I, I just thought that was, that was funny. So let's jump to our second article from the, or at least talking about the Davos Convention. It also comes from Common Dreams. Greta Thunberg warns Davos elite will throw humanity under the bus for profits. Quote, early into a panel discussion Thursday with fellow climate activists and international energy experts, Thunberg said, we are right now in Davos, where basically the people are who are mostly fueling the destruction of the planet the people who are at the very core of the climate crisis, the people who are investing in fossil fuels. Somehow these are the people that we seem to rely on solving our problems when they have proven time and time again that they are not prioritizing that, end quote. And yes, I know she's talking about climate, but I also want to agree with her on solving our problems. Nobody else can solve our problems. The government cannot step in. If we give them more power to solve problems, They cannot solve our everyday problems. They cannot always address these existential crises that Thunberg is constantly bringing up. So I know that she's speaking in a different context, but I do agree with that statement. And I'm taking it out of context in in order to make it palatable. I know. Look at me. uh, That's a media shill move. My bad. My bad. (laughs) So while I agree with Thunberg on how they are negatively impacting our world, or at least how they are going about doing it. I don't agree with necessarily all of her positions on climate, but I do agree 
that they are negatively impacting our world in some way, shape, or form. The Davos elite. As a person who has been on the inside of Davos before, I'm happy to really see her standing up against parts of their agenda. She's been invited in. She's been asked to come and speak at Davos, in Davos. This panel that she had was actually outside Davos, kind of as a protest. So I'm very happy to see that she went in, she was a part of the system, she recognized that they're not doing exactly what she wanted, or at least not doing it the right way, in her opinion, and she's standing up to them. I think that's very admirable at the end of the day. What Thunberg is trying to highlight is their perception on short-term gains, or at least their perspective on short-term gains. And she argues that while they are trying to really focus on helping the climate, they have such a short-term view of it that it's actually not going to help anything. It's actually going to hurt the environment. Many have argued at Davos the solution is consolidating power in institutions so that they have the means to tackle major issues. But to me, that's a very scary prospect. I don't think that the consolidation of power in any single entity or any cadre of elites, any oligarchical kind of pact will actually solve anything. The more power you give to somebody, the more they can misabuse it. I'm not saying that these elites would misabuse it. I think they would personally, but I don't know that for sure. So I'm not going to say for 100% fact that they would misuse it. But it's scary that they're asking. Essentially, over the last years, they've said that we understand the issues. We understand what's going on. We need to do this. Speaking as the enlightened saviors, the Plato coming down from the hill trying to impart knowledge upon the citizens and his students. And while their goals may be admirable, I do not believe that allowing them to have consolidated power is a good thing whatsoever, especially when they talk about ESG, basically a way to control private companies, or sorry, public companies, and bludgeon them with shareholder, different shareholder wants, stakeholder capitalism, essentially, or whether they're talking about social credit scores, which have been implemented in China. But rather than a simple social credit score, oh, no, 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 we're not going to monitor all your activity online and everything and what you say. We're just going to count the impact that you have on the carbon emissions. And if you're a heavy carbon user, then your score will be lower. And if you use less carbon, your score will be higher. So then we know who the people that actually care about our planet is. These sort of proposals are scary in my mind. And I do not like the fact that they are basically saying out loud, give us more power. These programs are going to help save the world. And if you just trust us, if you just allow us to put them in place and maybe not even abide by them ourselves because we're traveling here in thousands upon thousands of private jets to this nice ski lodge town in Switzerland where half of the world's population, maybe even 75%, could not afford to go on their own even if they put their life savings into it. It's, it's scary. And it really does show an elitist mentality that I think is extremely... Sorry, not an elitist mentality. Not necessarily that they believe they are genuinely better than us. 
but a mentality bred in the elite class, which is extremely dangerous. Quote Thunberg, who twice has been nominated for the Global Peace Prize for climate activism that has included global school strikes, said that we know that the changes we are advocating for are not going to happen overnight. And that is why we have to stay strong during a long period of time and grow the movement of people demanding an end to the fossil fuel era. The people standing up and raising their voices against all this is happening. That's the hope right now. The hope comes from the people, Thunberg concluded, a sentiment echoed by the other young climate activists on the panel, Vanessa Utak of Uganda, Luesa Nubar of Germany, Helena Guenta of Indigenous Community in Ecuador. They were joined by Faith Burrell, head of the International Energy Agency, which has also highlighted the need to keep fossil fuels in the ground, end quote. So once again, while I don't necessarily agree with every aspect of what Greta's agenda is, I respect her perspective, especially when it comes to how we are going to implement change. And I say we, as a young generation, how are we going to affect change in this world? And it's a long and arduous battle, but we must be the passionate ones. We must be the ones willing to stand up for what we believe and to push back. The activist game is a young man's game. Before you have responsibilities to your family and other such things, before you have a settled life, this is the time to push back, to be an activist, to fight for what you believe in. Because at the end of the day, we're not always going to have the ability and the will. We'll be beaten down. We will be stripped of this passion that we have now and we will become an integrated part of the system over time this is the time to push for what you believe this is the time to say no i'm going to stand up against these agendas that do not suit me that are not going to help if you're a person that's forward thinking are not going to help my family when i have one that are not going to aid my children when i have them in the future you have to think long term and that's what Greta's pointing out here, and I think it's very admirable. She used to be a very doom and gloom, we have to get it done right now. And I think this perspective of hers, as she's gotten older, that it's a long battle, that they're fighting upstream, that I think that perspective could be shared with a lot of people in our generation who don't see the results they want, and then they kind of give up. They say, oh, well, no, it's over. We didn't get that bill passed that we wanted. We, we can't keep fighting or we won't get it done. And some people give up. And a lot of people don't, but some people give up. And you can't have that mentality. We have to push. This is a long-haul battle at the end of the day, especially when it comes to the battle of values and the culture. And when I say battle, that's a bad phrase. When I, More accurately, I would say when it comes to how you want your society to be shaped and the values that you think are important in your society. That is a long-term initiative to really have those values present. And it's an ever-existing one, too. Even if you're not necessarily an activist as you get older, you can still imbue those values into your children, into your community. And then that, instead of being an activist, is how you ensure that the values you want to see in your society are there. The seeds are there. You water them, and you let the next generation take it up and be the activist. And it's a nice cycle, but it is a long-term 
conflict. It's a long-term perspective, and you need to have that, especially if you want to succeed. All right, let's jump to our last story, which comes from FEE Stories. The Freedom Convoy debate demonstrates why the right to free speech makes no sense. I know, sensational headline, right? Quote, it's hard to believe that one, the one-year anniversary of the Canadian Freedom Convoy is upon us. It was January 22, 2022, when the convoy began to form across the country. A debate has been raging in Canada ever since. Were the protesters, were the protesters within their rights to do what they did? Those who support the convoy argue they were, since the Canadian Charter of Freedoms and Rights, sorry, of Rights and Freedoms, guarantees the right to freedom of expression and freedom of peaceful assembly. Those who oppose the convoy largely agree with these freedoms, but argue that such freedoms should be subject to certain reasonable restrictions. Major obstructions to traffic and especially obstructions to critical infrastructure, such as bridges, are simply going too far in their view. Is the government supposed to stand by and let groups of hooligans bring the country to its knees? End quote. So those who are First Amendment purists would have no problem saying, well, of course, that's quite literally the point. The protests, they're meant to cause chaos in a peaceful manner to force people to pay attention, to listen to what these protesters have to say. And I'm actually a part of that boat myself. But the author is actually using this as more of a a springboard to a discussion of a more deep topic. So is there a right to protest, to speak freely anywhere you want? The author would argue no. It all goes back to property rights. You have the right to say anything on your own property but not necessarily on the property of others. Quote, freedom of speech is supposed to mean the right of everyone to say whatever he likes, Rothbrand writes. But the neglecting question is where? Where does a man have that right? He certainly doesn't have it on a property on which he is trespassing. In short, he has the right only either on his own property or on the property of someone who has agreed as a gift or in a rental contract to allow him on the premise. In fact, then there is no such thing as a separate right to free speech. There is only a man's property right, the right to do as he wills with his own or to make voluntary agreements with other property owners, end quote. But then, after this quote, if you want to take it in, take a step back, listen to it again, because what he's getting at is very simple-sounding, but it's a very, very layered statement. The question in my mind becomes, where do we derive these rights from? Because if you are to claim, there are lots of different theories, there are lots of different perspectives on where we derive rights from. Some say that they are God-given, in that God gave them to us in the world, that we automatically have them. We have the right. God gave us the ability to speak freely. Therefore, we have the right to speak freely. God gave us the ability to own land. And therefore, we have the ability to own land. Technically, God gave us the right to murder and kill, though. So why is that not okay? 
because in many religions it is highlighted that God is obviously against killing. So a lot of theories, a lot of perspectives on rights would be what has God given us and then what has God told us that we cannot do from a moral perspective. And that's one argument. That's the less strong argument in my opinion because at the end of the day, I think there's one that is really resonates here in the West that will really explain my point the best, which is natural rights, as John Locke discussed and a few other philosophers, which is in the state of nature, what rights do you have? Well, I would argue in the state of nature, you have the right to say whatever you want. You can go up to that other caveman and say, you know what, Bobby, I don't like your daughter. She's been mean, blah, blah, blah. And then you can say whatever you want. You risk offending him and you risk him attacking you because you're not in a civilized society, but you can still say whatever you want. But you can also stake out your land and property in a natural world. There's no society, there's no government dictating where land can and can't be imposing itself upon your rights. So that is the core question. And that's just one small part I wanted to highlight, which is how do we, he never really defines here how we have property rights. If you have a right to property under natural rights, then you also have the same, under the same premise, the right to freedom of speech. So I would love for him to highlight which theory of deriving rights that we're talking about here, besides just saying, oh, no, no, property rights are the only right we have because I don't necessarily agree with that, at least through the lens and the philosophies that I've learned to understand rights. And a lot of people would argue, well, the government either gives positive or negative rights. And that's a whole different conversation because we're talking about rights that pre-exist government. So I would love, and let's be clear, I'm not saying that he's going to tell me because he's never going to listen to this, or at least I don't think he will. But if somebody could throw it down in the comment section, if you have an understanding of where he's deriving this idea of property rights being the only right that people actually have that pre-exists government, I would love to hear your opinions on it because I think it's an interesting conversation, but I also think it's a dangerous one because it leads to what the author says next. The author goes on to quote that at the end of the day, or some of these other authors, he's quoting them saying that, we should privatize these spaces where people protest, where these protests take place. Then the private owners of those areas, the streets, the roads, the parks, could then rent out the locations for the protest. And I think that's extremely dangerous again, because at the end of the day, what if these private landowners, they don't agree with the protesters? And what if they charge them an outrage, they try to charge them an outrageous price to rent or use the property. And the author says, well, then they'll go to the next person over. They'll go to the next person who owns a bridge. They'll go to the next street. But at the end of the day, you shouldn't be limited. You should not be limited by the whims of somebody else. These protests are meant to, at the end of the day, draw attention to your main issue. If a person monopolizes the entire street system in a city, they could have one small alleyway where you're allowed to protest and anywhere else you're not allowed to, and they could shuttle you off to the side if they don't agree with your point of view. Or if they agreed with another person's point of view more, then they can rent out the space to them for $1. 
So I think at the end of the day, then again, it would probably come down to a price discrimination lawsuit if they are charging $1 to one activist group and $100 to another. But you see the thought here that there's a lot more that goes into it than just privatizing the road system and saying, oh, yeah, the free market will work itself out. Because at the end of the day, why would people be incentivized to allow these activists to rent it out when they could make more money from the government or a different organization or the people using the roads to go to work? You know, at the end of the day, I think that is the, the failure of this part of the discussion. But you know what? It's okay because I don't live in Canada, so I don't have to worry about it. If they want to implement this system, go ahead. I don't see it happening here in the U.S. anytime soon, especially because the government loves their public lands. So lastly, we have our daily delight from Upworthy. He found a newborn squirrel in his driveway and raised it. Their relationship is adorable. So very often, we find things in life that bring us joy out of great tragedy. And this is what happened to Robert Milburn. Quote, when Robert Milburn came across a tiny hairless creature uh, the size of his thumb in his driveway, he had no idea what it was. So he took it inside, wrapped it up, and kept it warm and started Googling. After figuring out it was a newborn squirrel that had probably fallen out of its nest, he put it back outside in a shallow box and waited to see if the mom would return for it. She did come to check it out, but then left it again. After Milburn would find out that the baby squirrel had a mouth deformity, which made it uh, most likely made it unable to suckle properly. End quote. So instead of pawning off the responsibility to someone else, Mr. Robert here, he decided to raise the little guy and named him Bobby. Quote, Bobby has a family now out in his little squirrel house. He and his squirrel wife, Barbara Ann, are the proud parents of four youngsters. Peepers, jeepers, creepers, and sneakers. Peepers peepers seldom ventures from the treehouse. Jeepers is just a bit more adventurous. Creepers creeps out further and sneakers sneaks into other trees. Melbourne shared this on his website, bobbysquirrel.com, end quote. And if you want to see any of the cute videos or photos from today's Daily Delight, or if you want to read any of the articles from today, there will be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Down there also is the Twitter handle, at your daily flip, where I post the link to the podcast on Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 8.30. So... You can go there straight from Twitter rather than having to go searching through YouTube. Just trying to break through a little bit. All right. With all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.